Welcome to the Language Mastery Show. This is your host, as always, John Fotheringham. In today's episode, I chat with Sarah Maria Hasboon, also known as Miss Linguistic, who is a polyglot, translator, linguist, and the managing director of Meridian Linguistics. She speaks Spanish, French, Mandarin, Korean, American Sign Language, Nicaraguan Sign Language, and Indonesian, and has also dabbled a little in Thai, Cantonese, and Malay. For show notes, go to languagemastery.com slash show. All right, enjoy my chat with Sarah Maria. Hi, John. Hello, hello. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. Nice to meet you. You as well, at least virtually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what brought you back to New York? Um, well, mostly meetings, lots of meetings, um, mostly for my translation company. Mm-hmm. And, but you're based in Seoul, usually, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm based in Seoul. I've been there for about six years now. Um, but for the last 14 months, I've been pretty much on the road nonstop. Wow. So, yeah, it's yeah. been great. I'm not going to complain. Um, and I'm very happy to be back in the U.S. and back in New York this week and doing all my American things and eating all my American yep. foods. And, yeah, I still nice remember th- when I came back from, I was in Japan for a couple of years, when I came back to visit the States the first time, the smell of the money. I still, <laughs> the smell of the money. That was the I remember being like wow. the, the biggest shock because I just had forgot that there's like a unique smell of American currency that other huh. currencies don't have at least at that time. I, is I don't it know. the paper or is it the sweat of American fingers? I don't know. That could very be a combination. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's probably the yeah. ink is my guess. So I I've been looking at your uh, Instagram account and you know you have all these amazing videos showing your you know, your monthly check-ins and things. And it's, thank you. Yeah, it's really inspiring. And I, I saw on your about page, uh, you'd said that you'd struggled with languages in high school, but now you speak, I think it's seven fluently. And then you, you say you can get by it in three others. Um, so walk me through how you went from, you know, just getting by in a language in school to now being, what we'd call a polyglot. I mean, be able to like really, really communicate in all these different languages. What's that origin story look like? Well, um, yeah, when I first started, my first foreign language was Spanish. I started in high school. Um, My father is from El Salvador. So my mother's American. My father's from El Salvador. I grew up in the U.S. um, But my father's English is too good. He's kind of my my language mentor um, or my language idol. He learned English to a very high level, even at a late age and was completely comfortable in it. And so that was the language that we used at home because that's the language that we all spoke. And I think maybe he might've tried for a few minutes to try to speak Spanish with me, but um, that didn't happen. And so then when I started trying to learn Spanish in high school, I was really stunned at how difficult it was for mm-hmm. me. I thought, well, I've got this you know, ethnic background. I've heard Spanish around and um, it's supposed to be one of the easiest languages for English speakers to learn, supposedly. And uh, I really struggled with it. And my even my high school teachers were kind of f- flustered at, at my inability to learn. You know, they said, couldn't you just show your homework to your dad? And couldn't you get some help with it, you know, from him? And and I really, really struggled. Um, I just, it just wasn't clicking into place. And I think it's because my ego took such a beating when I tried to learn Spanish that I developed this this real drive to finally learn it. And it's also because I look like a native Spanish speaker. I think it really added extra incentive to me, um, incentive that other people might not have had. Mm -hmm. I really, people came up to me all the time speaking Spanish and it really broke my heart that I couldn't respond to them. So I had this extra incentive and I kept on banging my head against the wall. I tried everything. I tried all these textbooks. I signed up for all the SAT classes, you know, AP, everything, nothing was working. And then I, accidentally got dragged into a linguistics class in college. I literally didn't even know what linguistics was, but mm-hmm. a roommate of mine said, Hey, I'm going, I'm going to shop the linguistics class tonight. Why don't you come with me? And I sat in the front row with her and my jaw just was on the floor. I could not believe that there was a subject devoted to this entire field that was so fascinating to me, even though I didn't at that point, you know, even speak a second language, I was still very fascinated in, well, I wanted to know why, Mm -hmm. why couldn't I learn this language when so many people around me seem to be learning other languages so, so effortlessly. So I decided to major in linguistics, um, which is a whole other story. Linguistic majors. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's right. You're a linguist as well. 
So, um, yeah, so I majored in linguistics and a couple of years later I went to live in Madrid to teach English and just, you know, force myself immersion. Everyone was telling me that's what you do to learn a language. So let's try that. And at some point things just kind of clicked into place. And I think it was the linguistic training plus the immersion. And finally, after six years, seven years of study, I became fluent in Spanish. So first of all, the biggest thing was that that was huge for my ego. That really helped my crushed ego. Mm -hmm. I finally felt, wow, okay, I can learn a language. It's not that I'm completely incapable. Once I had that first ability under, once I had that first gift under my belt, then I thought, well, I've always wanted to learn Russian. Maybe I could do this again, but do I have to do the immersion part? You know, could I just use my linguistics training and try to recreate that same experience that I had in Madrid, you know, exactly to take out exactly what part of that experience was contributing to my language ability. And I became very introspective about, about my language learning process. And I was tutoring other students in languages and learning from the mistakes that they were making and trying to figure out what was the most effective way to teach it to them. And then I signed up for Russian and it just clicked right from the beginning. It just, it just happened. So I signed up for French and signed up for Mandarin. And it suddenly was like, I was skiing downhill. I couldn't Mm -hmm. believe it. And of course my ego was, I was feeling pretty great then because I had thought for so long that I was just bad at languages. Um, and then I got to Korea and that's, you know, that knocked me kind of back on my butt because it's a really difficult language and I, I definitely needed that. But I think that it was something, it was that intersection between learning linguistics and then having that immersion experience and then figuring out what out of that immersion experience was truly effective. That really helped me go on to learn more languages. Awesome. So two questions. Uh, what is it about what you learned in linguistics that you think helped you acquire foreign languages better? Because I, this is something I get asked a lot and I, I talk about a lot. People assume because I have a background in linguistics that that training helps me learn languages. And I think it can in some ways, but I also think there's a lot of stuff you learn in linguistics that is just theoretical that actually doesn't really have much direct application. So I'd be curious to hear more about that. And then I'll have a second follow-up after that. Yeah. Yeah. So a a couple of reasons why I think learning linguistics really helps. One is just understanding the structure of how language works, um, especially in how language is different from writing systems, because people really tend to get those two mixed up. And People think that they understand the difference, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that, right? Um, People will say to me all the time that, you know, Japanese is a really hard language because it's actually three languages. And then I have to explain to them, well, no, No, it's not three languages. It's three writing systems. You still speak the same, but there's three different components to this writing system. Or people will say, yeah, I learned that, um, you know, the Korean... The Korean language was was uh, created by a by a linguist king, and I have to explain to them. Well, it wasn't the language that was created by this linguist king. It was the alphabet, which is yeah. an amazing alphabet. It's Indeed. one of the best ones to learn. Um, the king knew that there was a need for a writing system that was more efficient than the one that was being used, which was actually the Chinese writing system. Right. So to even tell the story, you know, I need to make sure that people understand the difference between writing and language. Right? I'd have to explain to them, people were always speaking Korean, but they were writing with Chinese characters, right. which you can do because Chinese characters are pictographic. They're, they're based on pictures or ideographic. They're not based on sounds. So you can use, you can basically write any language with a Chinese writing system. Which Japanese, of course, so also did. Yeah. what this king did is he realized that that was, yeah, exactly. Japanese also uses Chinese characters. So this king, but unfortunately the the bad thing about Chinese characters is they take a long time to learn. It's a lot of repetition since they're not made up of these individual phonetic components, the way that alphabets are, you have to memorize each one to some extent individually. So it takes a lot longer to learn and it's a lot harder for, you know, the peasants to have the time to learn a writing system like that. Whereas to learn an alphabet, it really just takes a matter of a few hours to become comfortable in an alphabet. So the king realized this and created the alphabet so though so that he could democratize literacy in Korea. And because he was a linguist, he actually designed it so that the letters of the alphabet look like the way that your tongue and your mouth are shaped. Right, right. So it's it's amazing. Even if you don't know that, when you learn the alphabet, it's so intuitive and you don't know why. Um, I mean you struggle with it a little bit because it, it looks different from your from your original alphabet, but but you learn it really fast and you don't quite know why until you learn that factoid. And it's just, it's a remarkable, a remarkable alphabet, but yeah, I'm digressing. Well, we were I, talking I love about... these digressions, but yeah, <laughs> and I, I, I spent, like you said, a few hours learning the Korean alphabet way back in college. And I remember exactly what you said. I mean, I think the palatals kind of look like the 
you know, like that, which is kind of like the back. And yeah. then the, um, you know, the, the bilabial sounds kind of look like a mouth and things like that. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, so, okay. So the part of linguistics that you found to be really useful was the framework of how languages work. Right. Um, the structure. The structure. Yeah. So right. one of them would be understanding the difference between a writing system and, and, a, and, a, and a spoken language. And the other would just be understanding the different components that come into language. So, you know, grammar and syntax, phonology, prosody, and then realizing that all of these are very different things that require a very different kind of attack. Mm-hmm. So when you want to learn prosody, you shouldn't be doing the same thing that you would be doing for trying to learn syntax and there and, you know, on and on. And then finally, just having a, a metalinguistic sense, as we say, which is just a sort of overall intuition for how languages work and how different languages work. And some people already have this. I obviously did not. But a, a lot of people, I've met a lot of people that already have this really good intuition without ever having studied linguistics. Um, but a lot of people don't. And so sometimes it, it really helps to have that linguistic training to just, you know, get that basic sense of understanding for, for structures that you're not used to. So that's why actually right now um, at this time of recording this podcast, I'm working on developing a course that's exactly that. It's linguistics for language learners. So cool. have just what you need to know yeah. to learn a language, not all the really theoretical stuff, only what you need to know that will help you learn a language. Just the applied linguistics stuff. That, exactly. Yeah, very cool. Do you know when yeah. that's going to be available? Uh, it should be available in the next month or so, hopefully. So the second thing that I want to ask you about, based on what you just said earlier, you experienced the power of immersion in country, but then afterwards you were able to, you created it on your own uh, and got much of the same benefit. Obviously, there are some things you can never recreate exactly, but mm-hmm. I think you know a big part of what I do is helping people create their own what I call at-home immersion mm-hmm. environment, no matter where they are in the world, which with the internet, YouTube, podcasts, you know, online tutors, like it really doesn't matter where you live anymore. There, there's no excuse is what I always say. Like, or if you say I can't learn language because I live in rural Kansas, it is just an excuse now. Um, so what are the things that you did to try to mimic, uh, an immersion environment for Russian? I think you, you said was the first one. Mm-hmm. So, um, what I realized was that the most effective part of my immersion was that by the end of my time in Spain, I had almost kind of forgotten the rules of Spanish. And someone asked me, I remember towards the end of my time there, someone asked me, oh, how do you conjugate or why do you conjugate this in this way? And I had to think back to my high school training and be like, oh yeah, that's right. We learned that for the preterite and this. But I realized that I was no longer thinking in those terms as I formed sentences. I was just saying what sounded natural or what what instinct my tongue had, essentially the muscle memory of my tongue and just what sounded right in my head. And I realized, well, how could that have happened? And why would I have why would I have forgotten these perfectly good rules that should be the ones that are helping me speak this language? And then I realized, well, well, in English, obviously, I don't know any of these rules. I've never learned these rules. I just say what sounds right. right. So I realized that I was essentially getting to a point where I was learning language, as I like to say, statistically or probabilistically. Mm. So I would hear a certain phrase a number of times, and I would realize that's the way it's supposed to be said. Mm-hmm. You know, you learn these chunks that you hear over and over. And if there's a chunk that you haven't heard that many times, it's very likely that it's not grammatical. Right. So I realized that there's a huge benefit to just passive learning, to just just spamming your brain, as I like to say, with mm-hmm. as much data as you possibly can so that your brain can make sense out of it. So your brain is very good at doing certain things unconsciously. So, for yes. example breathing. If you try to think about your breathing, it'll, and sorry that I just said this because now you're probably thinking about your breathing, (laughs) but if you think about it too much, you start doing it very inefficiently. It's much better to let the passive part of your brain, the unconscious part of your brain handle that. And I think it's the same for language. The more you think about it, the more you just trip over your own two feet. It's much better to sort of let the passive part of your brain take over. So the way that I set it up is I just spam myself with, spam my brain with as much stuff as I can. So I have podcasts going all the time. You know, if I'm going to watch a movie, I'm going to watch it in that language. Um, Glossica is a really great tool that I love to use, which is um, an online browser uh, where they curate sentences for the language so that you can hear certain grammatical structures that have been carefully 
really chosen and you just hear them over and over. Right. And it's audio focus, which is really nice. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Actually, I, I knew Mike when I lived in Taiwan, and I just oh great caught up with him on the podcast a couple weeks ago. So great, yeah. yeah no, that's a I, I love his product. I'm a huge fan of that product, and I love the breadth of the mm-hmm. of the offerings that he has. So, he has many, so languages. many different languages. Yeah, it's yeah. great, and more and lots so of the uh, you know minority languages and indigenous yeah. languages. Yeah, really cool. yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I tried dipping my toe into Hokkien, and I got really scared and, and ran away. <laughs> But um, but it's really cool that he yeah. has all that stuff there and a lot of stuff that you'll never find in Pimsleur. So, for example, Pimsleur is another big favorite of mine. Um, I don't think that you can only use Pimsleur to learn right. a language, but I think it's a great tool just to get these conversations in your head. So when I was in Italy last week, I kept on telling myself, don't study Italian. Don't study Italian. You're supposed to be focusing on Korean. Um, and my husband was, you know, egging me. And he's like, so you're going to study a little Italian? I was like, no, I'm going to focus on <laughs> Korean. I'm not going to get distracted. But I couldn't, I couldn't resist. I, I mean, yeah. we were having these conversations with, you know, people in restaurants and I, I just, I couldn't resist. So I downloaded Pimsleur. And even just from that, just hearing it, hearing the conversations that they, that they show to you, I was able to get a lot out of that. Just, mm-hmm. I could suddenly hear what sounded right. And I could hear when they asked me a question, I would remember it from the Pimsleur and I would be able to respond to that. So I think that's a, just the most important thing is, is just the volume of the data that you can get. And it doesn't matter so much if you have the time to actively engage with that data, but it matters just the volume that you get. Now in that early stage of trying to spam yourself with, with immersion input, do you tend to focus mostly on listening and speaking or do you try to balance also reading input as well? Yeah, I think it really depends on my goals for that for that language. Um, so, for example, when I was studying Thai recently, um, they, they use an alphabet, but it's a tricky one. It takes quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of work. So, I decided for my week long trip in Thailand, I wasn't going to learn the alphabet, which is which is new for me. I always advocate learning the alphabet because it's the most efficient way to understand the phonology. I think of a language, but. For that, I really just only focused on listening and speaking. Um, but for languages like Chinese, at which you know I really want to have full working professional proficiency, um, reading and writing is very important to me, and it's a lot of work. Um, yes. So I so I know that I have to devote a lot of time to that. And I imagine in your career as a translator that a lot of the work you do is actually the written language. Right. Right. Do you so also do interpretation yeah. or? So our company does do some interpreting, um, but the bulk of our work is translation because we're all remote. We work from all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's very efficient to just send text back and Absolutely. forth. So yeah, we're working with a lot of text. I'm actually not doing very much translation anymore now I'm, since I'm my managerial role doesn't really allow for that much. Right. Um, but but at least I get to see it. I get to see all the all the different texts coming through and all the cool languages and, and I get to see the translation decisions that people that are much better than I am are making and you can learn a lot from that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a, it's a tricky profession. I did a little bit of translation when I was in Japan, uh, for the government and, and a little interpretation and that's a really, really hard skill. Interpreting is really (laughs) hard. Yeah. I have so much respect for interpreters, especially, I mean, I now understand why they specialize in one, you know, niche or niche as it were. Um, because you just can't, you can't know all the vocabulary you need to know. Right on, you know, on call for for a broad range of topics. I think. Right, we have um, clients all the time ask us, you know, why why is it so expensive for one day of an inter- of interpreting? Mm-hmm. Why are we why are you charging so much? And I explain to them, well, even though this person is an expert in say, you know, electrical engineering, she's going to need to spend the next twenty four hours cramming all the vocabulary right. that you could possibly say. Right. You know, we don't know what you're going to say, so right. she needs to memorize all the vocabulary for just that field so that she's ready. It's it's not an interpreter's not a dictionary, right? Like she yeah. has to have this stuff ready right at the forebrain, especially if it's simultaneous interpretation. Oh, that's a whole she needs thing. to be yeah. ready to say it literally a second after you say it. So right. she not only has to memorize it, she needs to know it so well. So the preparation for those jobs is really labor intensive. Yes. If you have the option to prepare, I <laughs> had a few situations where I came into the office and they said, okay, today we're going to this cancer research center and, oh you're, and you're going to be interpreting for all of the English speaking visitors to the, to Kobe today. And, you know, they're giving this PowerPoint on, like, the latest cutting-edge cancer research findings. And there's words in English that I don't know. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, everyone it, you know, keeps looking back, you know, because they'll be, they'll say, and they'll be like, 
you know, they see the gears turning. Uh-huh. And then it'll be like a, a two-minute thing they said, and then the, the part I could figure out is like 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. yeah, anyway. Yeah, I totally understand. So so with Russian, you, you were able to create this immersion-like environment. You could spam yourself with lots of listening input. Other languages, you, you do use some of the uh, text-based input as well. Um, have you... So you mentioned Pimsleur, you mentioned Glossika. Are there other tools that you found really, really useful for creating immersion for languages in general or specific yeah. languages that you've learned? Definitely. My hands down, my favorite is italki. I'm obsessed. And they take so much of my money. <laughs> and I recommend it to all of my friends. Yeah. Um, because it just, with language learning, you know, I always draw comparisons between language learning and working out because they're sim- similar in so many ways. Yes. And Great. one of the ways in which they're similar is that you have to remove any pain points. You know, yeah, yeah. if you were trying to make it to a workout in the morning, you have to have your gym bag packed. You need yeah. to have everything ready to go. Cause if one thing gets in your way, then you say, eh, I don't have time for this right now. Right. So with italki, I love that you, you schedule the lessons in advance. You're highly incentivized not to cancel because you paid for it already and because you get reviews as well. So not only are you incentivized to show up, you're incentivized to show up and be on your game. And that's for you and the teacher. Mm -hmm. I love that with italki, um, your teachers never get lazy. So I definitely had a lot of experiences where my teachers start out so great and they're preparing these amazing lessons. And then by the time that, you know, I'm starting to plateau and I really need the most effort out of them. They're starting to get a little comfortable. They're showing up five minutes late, 10 minutes late. That never happens with italki. All of the teachers are so incredible. And I've used it for probably, I don't know, 12 different languages now. Because I'll use it for languages that I really want to progress in, I want to become advanced in. But sometimes I'll also use it because I just want to get a taste of a language. You know, I just want to know, I just want to get a sense of what Swedish is like because it sounds really cool. So I love that there's this, you know, smorgasbord um, of, of opportunities of all these different languages that you can try out and that it's just so well structured and it's really a good way to incentivize yourself. Definitely. Yeah. And they have good scheduling tools, which I really appreciate. Yeah. That's you know, so helpful with the time zones, exactly. especially. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Because in the past with other tools, I'm not going to name any names, but, uh, you know, time zones got mixed up and then either they weren't there or you weren't there then yeah yeah so that, that definitely I, yeah I agree. it's a huge help do you have any tips on finding a good tutor because i know some people mm-hmm. will go on they'll, they'll work with one tutor and then maybe it just won't click and they'll think ah tutoring is not for me and they'll yeah give up. yeah yeah I, I actually i'm you know, i've been thinking a lot about this lately um there's a lot of things that you should consider i think when you choose your tutor so for me um it really depends on my goals and the language. So for example, when I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't losing my French, I just wanted to keep it up. I just wanted to chat with someone. I went for a community tutor. So they're much cheaper, so much more sustainable. Um, and I just found someone that was in my time zone. He was living in Vietnam, a French guy living in Vietnam. Um, and I didn't have very high requirements for his you know, training or his abilities. I just needed a native French speaker who was fun to talk to. Mm-hmm. But when I got started with Korean, I realized, wow, okay, this is a tough language. I need like the, I need the Cadillac of Korean <laughs> teachers. You know, I need like the highest level. So I looked for someone that had a master's in Korean teaching um, who does that as her full-time job. She's very expensive, but very, very good. And I another indicator that I look for is just how many lessons they've taught. Uh, it's a very good indicator of how many people stick with them, right? So how many people continue to, to pay them their money. Uh, so it's a very good indicator of, of their ability. So yeah, it just really depends on your on your what you're looking for. And I think it's also really important if you want to get the most out of your tutor, it's really important to explain to them your goals right away. And ideally, even before the first lesson, um, I like to send them a message and say, hey, this is my background. These are the languages I already know. This is what I'm struggling with. Um, these are some ideas that I have. Of course, the, tu- the teacher is the expert. I'm not going to tell you what materials you should use with me. Right. But, for example, I might say, man, I've really been struggling on 
Korean syntax, this sort of thing. I'll give them an example of something that I struggle with. Do you have any ideas of how we could work on that together? So that gives the teacher time to prepare and to really show you their best work in that first lesson. And if you don't give them that time to prepare, they're having to do it all on the spot and every student's different. So I think that's, that's a huge, that's something that's very helpful. I also think it helps to be upfront about how you like to be corrected. I think that's really mm. important. Some people want to be corrected in the moment. Other people, they want a list after the tutoring session. Like you said this, but you really should say this. I, I think there's pros and cons to both. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's a really good point. Found that that's helpful. I'm thinking about what do I prefer? I guess, I guess I prefer to not be corrected in the moment, but to get them soon enough that I haven't forgotten. Exactly. Yeah, right. definitely. Yeah, it has to be proximal enough Yeah, that it, there's some connection in your head. Yeah. And especially if you're a new learner, it's really important to uh, not be scared to talk. So if you're being corrected a lot, you might be nervous. Absolutely. Um, That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, just how, you know, every language teacher, every polyglot will tell you, don't be afraid to make mistakes. And we can say this until we turn blue, but I don't know if a student will truly, will truly accommodate that idea until they realize that actually there's a lot of flexibility with language. You can really mess up a lot and still be understood. And if you can just get to that point where you're understood, you can work on trying to sound elegant later, Absolutely. you know, but if you can just get to that point where you're understood, then you've made it 90% of the way. And the rest of the time you can focus on sounding beautiful. I think there's just so much conditioning to get things quote, unquote right. And to get an A uh, and right. then mistakes equal failure instead of mistakes equal growth. And then, right. but as you said, you can talk about this in a philosophical conscious way, but I think getting over that emotional hurdle is, is really difficult. Do you have any tips yeah. on, on how to, let's say somebody has never learned a foreign language. They're about to have their very first tutor session on italki or, or some other tutoring site. How do they prepare? Well, how do they get themselves both psychologically ready, but also practically ready to make that session go better. Oh, that's, that's the fun part. I love that stage. I love it when I've, maybe I've planned a trip to, you know, Thailand and I'm, I'm thinking, Oh, I'm going to learn Thai. How am I going to go about this? What are my first steps? I love this part. Um, so the first thing I like to do is just start getting used to the sounds. Um, if it's a spoken language, obviously, um, if it's a sign language, then watch as much as you possibly can. But um, for a spoken language, yeah, just get the sounds in your head. Get the overall prosody in your head. That's um, something that a lot of people don't think about prosody, which is the musicality of the language um, at the sentence level or at the paragraph level. Um, It's really important to get a sense of that kind of sound because that will actually help you a lot with parsing the smaller units. I was just thinking about this today, how if you asked me, uh, what do you want to eat for dinner? And I said, uh you'd kind of know what I just said, mm-hmm. right? Even though I used zero phonemes in that, in that sound, you could tell from my phonology that I was saying, I don't know, right? And if you can just get that phonology, you can get used to that phonology, then it almost doesn't matter if you catch the individual sounds that are in there, if you right. can understand what that might correspond to. So <clears throat> just getting that overall sound in your head is a huge first step. So I just listen to, I just go and find all the podcasts in that language, doesn't matter if I'm going to understand them or not. I just want to be listening to them while I'm doing my chores. Um, I'll get the glossica for that and start doing the glossica. Lately, I've liked to, when I'm traveling and I'm in a hotel and I've got a hotel gym, um, and try to go really early when there's no one else there and I'll get on the treadmill and then I'll just be shouting out my glossica reps. Um, <laughs> and then inevitably someone else walks in and I have to shut right. up very quickly. And, uh, uh and security, there's a but... crazy woman here <laughs> shouting in Thai. Shouting on the tre- in Vietnamese. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I love that because I'm just walking slowly on the treadmill. Otherwise glossica is so painful. I mean, I love it, but it's painful. It's boring. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, and a, that's why it's effective. Exactly. It is. For those who haven't done it yet, it, it's it's about reps. It's like yeah. you made the analogy earlier to working out. It is a workout. Yes, exactly. Languages. It's but, a lot like working out. But yes, it, it, I think it's very effective. I've only so done you have to do whatever you can. Yeah, I, I've just tested it out, and I, I did just a few hundred reps, and it was amazing for a language I hadn't studied in a number of years, and I, it was amazing how much came back just from a few hundred reps in there. Mm. So. Well, and I have a great recommendation for people that want to work with Glossica because I also struggled with, with keeping myself on a good habit with it. Um, I ended up finding someone on italki, a very cheap community tutor, 
um, who was Korean. I was really working my Korean pronunciation. There are certain sounds in Korean that are very tough for, for English speakers. So I asked her to just be on the line, basically call me at our appointed time, and I'm just going to go through my reps with her listening. If she hears anything egregious, stop me. Mm. But really, she's just there for my accountability. That's I told cool. her it's going to be yeah. really boring. You can go, yeah. you can do your dishes, do whatever you want while you're <laughs> listening to this. This is just to make sure that I show up and I do it and I do it for my full half hour. That's and smart. I, I would yeah. meet with her for twice a week, sometimes three times a week. And, uh, and that would force myself to do it and to keep it up and not get distracted by other things. That's, that's smart. What are the sounds that are most challenging you find in Korean? I assume it's the, the unaspirated P, I know, is one that exactly. Americans it's the, struggle the with. Exactly. It's the voicing and the aspiration difference between the P, the B, and the B that's sort of in between the B and the P. Mm-hmm. And then it's the same for the G and the K distinction um, and the T and the D distinction. So it's really difficult to hear, to even hear the differences between right. those sounds, um, let alone pronounce them. So that's something I'm still working on. In fact, I just had a lesson yesterday with a tutor in which I said, let's just come back to this and make sure that I'm doing this right. And just for 30 minutes, we drilled those sounds because it's a, it's something that can really impede others comprehension of what you're saying. So I wanted to nail that. Have you looked at uh, fluent forever, the new app? They do a lot of really cool. I'm not familiar with that. So uh, Gabe Weiner, I also just interviewed lately on the podcast. He just launched this new app called fluent forever. Um, He'd written a book by the same name a couple years ago. And he, one, I really like the app in general, but one of the things that's really cool about it is they do minimal pair training. So mm. they'll take two sounds that, that sound to the uninitiated to be identical, but it is a meaning distinction, you know, phonologically in that language. And so they train ah. you, that, you know, and it's amazing. I, I just, just started German. I mean, absolute zero beginner. And uh-huh. they would, they would play these two sounds. And when I first heard it, I thought, no, that's the same sound. You're kidding me. Uh-huh. There is uh-huh. no difference. But you keep doing it, keep doing it, and then you come back to it you know, a week or two later, and then you can actually hear it. You can start to hear, maybe not yet say, but you can start to hear right. the difference. But even that is a huge, huge step. Huge. You've literally trained your brain to do something that consciously you could not right. teach it to do. Yeah, that's, Absolutely. that's amazing to me. Yep. That is the one thing. I, I, I talk a lot about how adults actually have many advantages for language learning, which I mm-hmm. we can talk about in a minute. but. Um, that's the one thing that babies definitely have is their their brains and their ears are open to everything and they haven't yeah. yet filtered out unmeaningful sounds. It so. really it blew my mind when I found out that that's something that you lose. I thought yeah. like the, that a baby literally loses is their ability to distinguish sounds from a language right. that they're not native in. Um, right. But yeah, but also... Uh, it's definitely a pet topic of mine, the, the, the question of whether adults can learn better or worse than children. Right. And I think it's, it's definitely an important thing to discuss. Yeah, which, I, I mean, it's a bit of a silly dichotomy because obviously whether there are differences or not, we're not babies. So it's irrelevant in some sense. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we're, we're yeah, adults. So, so what, yeah. the question so what is, are we going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and arguing about whether we're better or worse in some senses can be a bit of a you know, tail tasting, uh, you know, yeah. philosophical debate, but, but yeah, what are, what are your thoughts? Cause a lot of people will say, um, they'll say things like I'm too old to learn language. Um, you know, I read this study that said, you know, after the age of 12, you can't learn a foreign language. What, what would you say to something like that? Well, I can say that in the last five to 10 years, there've been a lot more studies that showed that some of the earlier studies of the critical period hypothesis, right. which you're familiar with, but for our listeners is the hypothesis that there's literally a point at which you cannot learn language at the same rate that a child can. There's a drop off in your language learning abilities. Um, there were a lot of really interesting studies that were done on that supported this hypothesis. Um, but lately there's also been a lot of new studies that show that there were issues with the earlier studies and that maybe we're not looking at this the right way. Um, and I think that one of the most, one of the most convincing things that I've heard recently is that babies just have a lot more time than we do to devote to this, you know, and no choice. they don't have full-time jobs <laughs> and no choice. They yeah. have to, they're very, very motivated. Right. So, um, you know, and it takes them, it depends on what you're, you know, how you define fluency, but it takes them about three or four years to truly become fluent in a language. Um, I do find it infuriating when I've been studying a language for longer than a child and then the child just 
you know, busts out with this perfect Korean interrogative. And I'm just like, how'd you do that? Yeah. I took, it took me four years. You're only three years old. Right. But the case is that, yes, they have a lot more time than we do. Um, and they can focus exclusively on all this data that they're getting and they can start and, and they're also not thinking too actively about it, which once again, I think is the problem. You know, when we're focusing on our own language learning studies and we're being very, we're being very conscious of it, we're almost getting in our own way. Mm -hmm. And the kids, they're not thinking about, they're not thinking I'm learning English, you know, they just, and they're also not afraid to make mistakes. They're making mistakes all the time. So they're just getting out there and they're doing it. And then they're learning as they go. So the most important thing is, you know, as adults, you do hear all the time. And I've been that kind of person that says, I just don't have time. And I think that the key is that you need to figure out how to make the best use of all your dead time. You know, the time that you're on the subway, the time that you're getting ready in the morning and just do not discount the power of passive learning. So just even if you don't have time to like focus on this, you can probably have a, a Netflix show going in the background while you do this other task, right? right? So if you if you learn how to capitalize on on dead time, I think it can really help you get closer to the amount of time that a child has. And even if it isn't as much time, I mean, I, I say this all the time: one minute in a foreign language a day is better than zero minutes, right? In a foreign yeah. language a day, so and definitely. I also I often retort to somebody that says I don't have time I said no you don't have the priority which is okay yeah. you know you don't have to learn a foreign language nobody there's no yeah. gun against your head here but if you really do if you really really want to do it uh saying I don't have time just means actually no it's not as important to me as these other things exactly right whatever exactly. those things might be and I'm again I'm I, there are people that are genuinely busier than other people I mean if you have kids I yeah. I've, I've been a, a stand-in uh my brother I helped with my nephew for two years he called me his bro pair and uh, uh so i i don't have my own kids but i have i have lived the life as close as one could to being a parent and i definitely i can appreciate how time consuming that is yeah uh, but even even then even with you know working full-time taking care of a kid um i still found little slivers like you said little hidden moments as barry farber calls it where you can mm-hmm get in, you know, a few reps here and there, listen to a podcast, you know, do a few flashcards, whatever it is. Right. So, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely psychology more than it is, um, you know, actual limitations in time. Right. Um, so are there any things now that you've learned? It's seven languages to fluency, I believe, and three, three that you get by in. Is that Right. Something like that. Something Although, like, you know, honestly, when track, we like, talk about yeah. it, well, I can't keep track because it changes, you know? So sure. when I talk about how I learned Russian in college, I, I became fluent in college. I was so proud of my ability. Um, and that's a language that I've almost completely lost by now. It's about 10 years that I haven't really used it. And, uh, it was amazing to me that I could so fully lose a language that I've been so proficient in before. Yeah. Now there are languages. My Spanish now is at a point where I can leave it alone for, I've left it alone for a year, like barely speaking any Spanish for a year and I can come back to it, dust it off. And it's pretty much still there. Mm-hmm. But most of my other languages, they need constant upkeep. So at any given moment, you know, I might say that, um, yeah, when I list the languages that I've learned, um, at any given moment, they'll all be at very different levels right. depending on what I've been working on that month. So, right. and also, you know, it begs the question, how do you define fluent? I mean, that's, I, I I'm sure you, get this question all the time. Like, Oh, are you exactly. fluent in X language? You're like, well, what do you mean by fluent? You know, define, you know, do exactly. I know every word? No, I don't know every word in English, but right. can I, can I get by? Can I travel? Can I have a, you know, 30 minute conversation in the language? Can I, you know, talk on the phone in the language and not get lost? You know, right. Those are usually exactly. the, the met- metrics I use, but so is there anything that you've changed your mind about in the last three to five years or so in language learning? Yeah, so really, as I was saying before, this concept of statistical or probabilistic language learning, um, I was not—I was not as much of a believer in that before. So, I really believed that if I just put in the time, learning the rules, you know, sat with textbooks um, and took classes. I found my college language learning classes to be so effective, and I thought if I could just replicate that later, that I'd be able to have the same. Um, the same experience, the same results. 
But especially as I've been learning Korean, I've found that I really need to be out there. Um, I think it's, it's so, so important to not focus on rule-based learning because our, the pedagogies that are out there don't necessarily have all the answers and they don't necessarily know. I mean, we're all, we're linguists, we're fallible. We've written our, our papers about how, you know, the glottal distinction exists in, in Arabic and our own understanding of how languages work, but that's not necessarily the be all and the end all of how it works. And we're always discovering new nuances to rules that are out there. So if you focus on rule learning, um, you're going to get caught out. And if you need, if you let yourself, if you let yourself use statistical learning and you let yourself just hear grammaticality and develop an instinct for language, you'll probably learn much faster and much more effectively. Absolutely. So I think that's the biggest change um, that I've coming to this idea of probabilistic and statistical learning. Right. And just, you know, time on task. You know, we get better yeah. at what we practice. So yeah. if yeah, you definitely. spend your time reading textbooks, you're going to get really good at reading textbooks. And if you yeah. spend your time listening and speaking, you'll get good at listening and speaking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I always like the analogy of uh, learning to drive. Like, would you rather read the owner's manual of your car and try to figure out how to drive that way or just drive? Right. Just go out right. and drive. And, and the manual probably has a lot of great ideas and a lot of different explanations, but a lot of, and I actually don't know how to drive. So, you know, oh, maybe this is a bad analogy. The right. <laughs> but for example, I would, I would assume that when you're driving, you come up with your own kind of tips. Like I know the manual said that you should think about it. Like your hands are what three and nine or nine and four or something. Yeah. But the way that I think about it is, Oh, my hands are going to be in this position that relates to some other analogy. So, you know, sometimes the textbooks will help. Sometimes the textbooks will say, if it's an ongoing action, then conjugate it this way. Right. But sometimes you have to come up with your own ideas of how that works. Sometimes you have to say, well, I've heard it a lot in this kind of situation, and I haven't heard it in that situation. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use it in this and not in that. And I'm not going to think about it uh, about being an ongoing action or not. I'm just going to think about it as being related to these two situations. I find that, you know, some people are completely anti-textbook or grammar. I'm not anti. I just think it's a matter of sequencing. And I think they can be very, very helpful later on. Once you've gotten all of that, as you said, if you've spanned right. yourself enough with it and then you have this sort of unconscious competence already where you can say the thing intuitively, as you said, then you go back and look at it, it's like, oh, that's that thing. That's right. And then maybe it's that last little one or two percent where you still make really minor mistakes or, you know, you struggle with something that even native speakers struggle with, which is often the case. I mean, in English, you know, ask a high school student when to use who or whom, yeah. right? Which is one of those things that it's – and I would even say it's not that it's hard. It's that it's so rarely used. They haven't gotten enough spam to have an intuitive, unconscious understanding exactly. of how to use it. So, And that's because we use it differently in different registers and you right. know, who knows if we even really – Oh, the sounds of New York. exist in the next – yeah, sorry. It's very loud. <laughs> no, it's right fine. Now. It's very authentic. People, people will know, know where <laughs> you are. You. Yeah. 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 So that's the difficulty. And that's a whole other, a whole other issue, the issue of dealing with if you're going to learn the, the highest register of the language or the register that's actually being used by people day to day. And, and that can be really tricky, you know, to, to clarify with your teachers. Sometimes I'll say, no, I, I really want to learn, you know, this way of speaking, the way that, you know, what did you just say? You just said this thing. And it's like, oh, no, I didn't say that. And say, oh, maybe I did say that, but I shouldn't have said that. Don't listen to me. That's not the way that people talk. And uh, you have to convince them that, no, I just actually want to be able to talk, you know, the way that everyone talks, even if you think it's not the right way. Right. Depending on your needs, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a really important distinction. And and it gets very, very tricky because... um, there is this belief of quote unquote right and wrong way to speak, which, you know, in linguistic circles, we don't say that we say there's prescriptive and descriptive. And, you know, I'm definitely a fan of descriptive linguistics. I don't care how some grammar maven thinks I should speak. I want to know how do most people actually speak? Because, you know, we learn languages to communicate with people, not to pass tests. Yes, exactly. Least, and least, it's so arbitrary. It's so arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. It's so arbitrary what we choose to be okay and what we choose to not be okay. And it changes with every generation. Absolutely. And it's so fun when you live outside of the U.S. and then you pop back in every few years, you start hearing things that um, 
you know we're not okay before mm-hmm. and then are suddenly completely fine. Um, like dangling prepositions, putting prepositions at the end of the sentence, right. I was always taught was not something I should ever do. Right. And so I trained myself to never do that. And now I'm hearing that all the time. I'm seeing it in written language, even yep. in newspapers. Um, and I'm pretty sure that by the next generation, no one's going to care. Gone. Do you know, do you know where that came from? I, I no, this. I don't. It's actually, it's a Latin based rule because uh-huh. it, right. Um, Which is not even the family that our language is in. So, there are things, the way you do things in Latin, and so they thought, oh, Latin's this prestigious language. We should try to mimic yeah. that too. It's absurd. No way. It's that's abs- so, yeah. yeah, that's so funny. So yeah. So that now I feel really bad for English. It's been kind of whipped into shape in it a way has. that it didn't even need to be. No. And then, and then there's so many. Every time I come back, there's all also the language that the name of this language evolves a lot too. But Ebonics or Ave sure. um, in the United States. It's just, it's continued to evolve while I've been gone and I come back and there's all these new amazing um, words and even grammatical things that it does. It's fascinating. And some of it has seeped into the the main language as well. And, you know, if we told people that they weren't supposed to talk like that, then we wouldn't have all these amazing new things that we have now in the English language. Even, you know, words like gonna, which maybe people still consider to be really casual and not proper speech. In the next couple generations, it's going to be completely fine. I mean, can't, right? Instead of cannot. Um, If if we weren't accepting influences from these languages that maybe previously were considered very low register, we wouldn't have so many beautiful turns of phrase. I always just say it's it's just linguistic racism. Yes, exactly. It it really is. And, you know, people, for whatever reason, people have a higher tolerance for bigotry based on the way someone speaks than bigotry for how somebody looks and they're obviously both horrific and terrible, but, but there's this double standard and I get in arguments all the time with people that they'll say something based on someone's dialect, their register, their, their word use. And they'll say something about their level of education or their background. And you know, Mm. that's one of my pet peeves. I I don't, I'm not too argumentative about many things, but that's one thing that I always will. It's it's just a good thing to just you know just, just remind them of it. Yeah, just check yourself. Know what they're check doing. yourself. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Check yourself. Exactly. And right. we all have to learn. All of us are learning this all the time. And you know, me, I'm learning this every day in Korea, all the all the ways in which I can be more accepting or more understanding of, you know, things that are completely different from me. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. I'm learning. Absolutely. Yeah, we're all we're all learning. Never stop. Yeah. You know, you mentioned some of the changes that have happened recently. One that I think actually is a really useful change is using their, you know, T-H-E-I-R, mm. to refer to, you know, his or her. Instead of having yeah. to say his or her every time, yeah. just the blanket there. Because then it also includes, you know, non, you know, binary, gender, specific. gender yeah. right. It's a much more, well, I think, accepting. you don't want to specify the gender, which sometimes is very important. Sometimes, you know, you're trying to talk about someone anonymously right. and revealing the gender would reveal who the person is. Right, right. It's uh, so many languages have this and English doesn't. So why not just accept the one that sounds totally normal? You know, they're like, we've got the people on one end saying, no, this is not English. Don't say it. And got people on the other hand saying, let's make up a totally new thing like Z or all these other things. Why not just use the one that's already Right, right, exactly. We already have a perfectly good one. Just just, just use it. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. The beauty of living languages. Yep. That's why we love what we do. It's, it fascinates me and and still really confuses me the fact that languages have to keep changing or else they die. You know, right. it's like a shark that has to keep moving and or else they die. And no one knows why, but we know it's the case. We know that a language when a language stops changing, it's probably going to go extinct. My theory is, and this is kind of an anthropological evolutionary theory, and I'm sure people have written about this, but I, I think what makes sense is that because languages probably evolved as part of tribal identity and a way to know my tribe versus your tribe, because you can't fake it, right? You, you can't, right. it takes a lot of work to fake an accent perfectly, right? So I think that was one of the early reasons why. But I think now it's a generational oh. thing where each generation, they'll change their language, even in, in your peer groups, right? You'll have your words that you use, your inside jokes. It's your way of establishing identity and group identity. I'm, you know, I'm this, I'm, uh, you know, whatever your ethnic background is or whatever your, your local cultural background is, it's a way to really know and solidify, I think, membership to that, that little group. That's my yeah. theory. And I, I, that, I mean, I think a lot of people share this theory. I know that the linguist love above, um, 
you like to talk about this when he talked about how we have all these crazy new linguistic things that are happening that do not help comprehension, but rather hinder comprehension. Right. Um, and that the only reason why you would want to do that is to create a peer group. And it makes sense, especially when you think of just how terrible, how like nails on chalkboard it sounds when your parents try to use your slang. Yes. And you just, you just, it, something feels really wrong and you get really angry. <laughs> and why would we care? Why do we care at all? We should only care if we're trying to create a very distinct peer group. And, and that must have some kind of, it must have some kind of evolutionary um, benefit for us. Otherwise we wouldn't care. Right? right. Right. Yeah. And I think it, it just depends also on the authenticity of it. Does it sound authentic? Mm-hmm. And I think when a parent tries to use a slang term that they don't fully understand, mm-hmm. you know, for example, it's like, oh, this party is lit, you know, <laughs> it's just, it just sounds, it sounds a little weird. Um, Except that's how I sound now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't... come back to the U.S. and I'm like, oh, that's so extra. And then wait, wait, did I use that right? Did, yeah. was, was that... Right. Correct usage. Like, sorry, Mira, that is so 2005. <laughs> <laughs> Stop trying to make extra happen. It's not going to happen. I literally <laughs> just watched Mean Girls for the first time the other day with my okay. wife. Oh, She's great. like, you okay. have to see this movie. I'm like, okay. She said, it's Tina Fey. I'm like, okay. You have me, Tina Fey. I'll watch it. There's yeah. a little bit of linguistics in it. So Indeed. Indeed. It. Yes, there was. Yeah. yeah. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I this made me think even about foreign language applications where – I think there's a resistance of a lot of people in terms of accent and intonation and body language and, you know, a lot of the non-spoken things too is I think a lot of new learners, they feel really weird. They feel really, well, inauthentic when they're trying to Mm. learn like the, as you said, the prosody or the the intonation patterns or the hand gestures of, of a new language. But that's always that difference between a really good speaker and a, really not so good speaker it's mm. all those those things that they're willing to mimic and imitate native speakers as closely as possible that's so true and i think i remember having that feeling the first time as i when i first started to learn spanish and i'm living in the u.s there's tons of spanish speakers around and i'm telling myself if you want to be a good spanish speaker you should be practicing with those people you should be speaking yeah. spanish to them and i would open my mouth to speak spanish and then i would just feel like such an imposter right like why who am i to speak spanish to this person who probably speaks english so much better than me why would they want to waste their time you know waiting for me to get this this language out and i think that actually you know going to spain where there were a lot of people that couldn't speak english yeah. so i was forced to speak the language and it wasn't me it wasn't about me being an imposter or pretending to be someone that i wasn't it was just me trying to have an interaction and trying to get something done. That's when I finally felt like, oh, this is not, I'm not being an imposter. I have to use this language. And then I was able to carry a little bit of that back to the U.S. And now I, can, I feel like I can speak Spanish with people here and not feel like an imposter. And it doesn't matter if I have an accent, which I'll always have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can at least communicate with them. So I don't feel bad. But I think you need to have that first experience of speaking in a foreign country where really the language that you have learned is going to make this interaction. They're not humoring you. Right. You will not be able to communicate unless you use this language that you learned. That's a huge, great first step towards becoming confident. Which I do think living in country or traveling in country, that is one advantage. I mean, I'm, I think we both are in agreement that you can learn any language anywhere, but there is that advantage of going to the country is when it's right. the only option. Um, the monolingual speaker. That's right. Yeah. That's your, it's your best friend. Best friend. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or a tutor who is either monolingual or who you were paying not to speak English. With not you. to speak English. Yeah, exactly. Which exactly. Is another, if I think, you try to try to find that friend to practice the language with that also speaks English, no, not going to happen. Not going to yeah. happen. Well, especially you said earlier about, you know, your experience growing up with, with Spanish, you know, your primary goal with your dad was, having a familiar relationship, not learning Spanish. So it doesn't matter how much you want to do it. You know, the relationship is always going to be primary. Exactly. And that's exactly what my dad said. You know, I, I, of course I gave him so much trouble later when I was in high school and I was struggling to get through this class. And I said, dad, why didn't you teach me Spanish? So many of my friends, I grew up in San Francisco. So, so many of my friends were from Hong Kong. They all spoke Cantonese with their parents. So it's like, well, how come they could speak it? And I couldn't. And he said to me, he said, my priority was that, you know, we had a good relationship and we fought about everything else. You know, if you're a two year old, you're going to fight about your bedtime. You're going to mm-hmm. fight about what I let you eat. I didn't want to add another fight about what language we spoke in. Mm-hmm. So 
then when he told me that, I, it finally clicked for me. I understood, oh, okay, yeah, it was not your job to teach me right. Spanish. And, uh, and I'm glad that, that he prioritized having, a good, having good communication and having a good relationship. Mm-hmm. And I learned Spanish later, so it ended up being fine. Worked, worked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you learned all these, these new techniques that you've been able to apply. Right, which I never, if I, if it had come to me naturally, I probably never would have been interested in languages because I say this is something that I do. I speak two languages. Everyone else speaks two languages. Why is this interesting? No big deal. But it's because I really struggled that I really had to figure out techniques. Mm -hmm. That's something I've noticed as a common pattern with all of the, you know, polyglots and linguists and language bloggers I've interviewed for the Language Mastery show. That's one of the most common threads is really struggling with a language right. early on. I, I haven't really talked to too many people that just had an easy go at languages early on, but thank goodness that's the way it worked out because they've learned all these other things they've been able to like share with the world and inspire others to do the same. So, yeah. So exactly. thank you. Exactly. So glad it worked. Glad it worked out in the end. Um, Me too. So any final uh, words of encouragement for those that are just getting going? in a language it can be really intimidating there's a lot of mm-hmm. conflicting advice out there yeah I would just say um you know as I think back to my own experience just don't it's it's not you you know it's the language it's not you if you are struggling you just haven't found the right technique yet and everyone has a technique that works well for them I think there are a lot of techniques that work well for a lot of people um, but you need to find a technique that works with not just your brain, but also your lifestyle, um, something that's easy and something that's pleasurable um, and that, you know, is sustainable. Um, and once you lot, and then if you have clear goals as well, if you have clear short-term and long-term goals and you find a strategy, you find a routine that works with your lifestyle, then it's going to click and, and you'll be a lot more successful. But don't ever get discouraged um, in the beginning if it's not working, it's just because you haven't found the right technique. Right. Yeah. It's not you. You're not broken. Yeah, it's not you. Your method yeah, exactly. is. Like we are s- literally as humans, we are designed to learn language yeah. and our, our brains are optimized for learning language. So you just have to click into that ability. You just have to learn how to open that program basically. And, and you'll be fine. What are some of your current goals for yourself? Mm. Um, well, right now I'm, I'm pivoting back to Chinese. Um, I really want to get back into uh, working on reading and writing, which I'm pretty terrible at. Um, my speaking level really skyrocketed when I was living in China and gave me a lot of confidence. And I got to the point where I thought, oh, I don't really need to know how to read and write. You know, I'm not really using that. Um, and I was so happy with my speaking ability. And I've gotten to the point where that's not going to fly anymore. If, if I want, to, even if I want to continue improving my speaking ability, I'm going to need to have access to all the media that's out there that, you know, I need to be able to read newspapers and I need to be able to get on Weibo and get on all the different social media that's so cool right now in China. Yeah. So, so I'm pivoting back to that. Um, want to keep on working on my Korean. I'm not going to give up. It's a kick in my butt, but, but I'm not totally done with it yet. And just keeping up my other languages so I don't forget them, so so that Russian doesn't happen again. Maybe yeah. maybe I'll try to bring Russian back up too. It's still there. It's like I always say, it's like a jungle where the the road is still there. It's just been grown over. By exactly. Right? So, Got to do a lot of pruning. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, what does mm-hmm. uh, a typical day look like for you now then, in terms of language learning? So it depends on my goals, but so for example. Um, Last month I was in Malaysia and I had studied Indonesian before, which is very similar language to Malay. Um, so, but I really wanted to learn Malay while I was there. So, um, and I knew that I was going to have about six weeks there. So to make the most of my time there, I signed up for an italki lesson about four times a week with one tutor. And I actually signed up for a second tutor. This is also something that I recommend doing is not sticking to one tutor Mm -hmm. um, because you don't, first of all, you don't want to only learn their idiolect, like their own way of talking. And second of all, you don't want them to get too used to you, that they're then accommodating you. Um, And they're learning, you know, they're understanding you really well because they've worked with you very closely, but you don't know then if what you say to this kind of teacher is going to fly when you try to say it to someone else on the street. So it's good to vary it up a little bit. It's good to have one teacher that knows you really well and can help you keep leveling up. 
but it's also good to get a variety of experiences. So when I was in Malaysia, I had one tutor that I met with four times a week. I had another tutor that I met with just once a week who wasn't a professional teacher, just a community tutor, just someone to chat with, just make sure, did everything I learned with this tutor, does that actually fly? You know, will he actually understand what I'm saying? And those two tutors together were just a dream team. They worked, they never met, they never, you know, they never, I don't think they even knew about each other's existence, mm-hmm. but, but together I, I really, I made so much progress. Um, so I'd have my lesson usually in the morning, in the mid morning after the coffee has set in. Um, and I'd try to do Glossica maybe once or twice a week with Malay with other languages. I do it a lot more, but Malay is actually very easy to pronounce. Um, and then I just try to use up as much dead time as possible. So getting ready in the morning, putting on my makeup, I'd always have pins or going or a podcast going, um, getting ready or, you know, at the end of the day, brushing my teeth, I always have something going, um, making the most of my dead time and all the time in between I have to work I've got a pretty pretty packed schedule these days but um but I get so much pleasure out of the progress you know when you start from nothing and then suddenly you can have a conversation or then suddenly you can actually have a phone conversation Mm -hmm. and suddenly you can have a whole conversation with a taxi driver and uh you know that just gives me so much joy and that helps helps keeping me plug away even when I get busy yeah it's really important to have those little milestones because it is exactly. a lot of work and it is a lot of time. And you have to have some some joy in it. Exactly. What's the point? Some joy or a, a good goal. You know, yeah. the, another thing that helps me a lot is um, social media. So now that I've been doing these videos a lot more, um, I tell myself, okay, I'm going to upload a German video by the end of this week. And so that really helps me stay focused. And, and every, as I'm doing my glass, I'm thinking, this is really painful, but I'm going to sound so awesome in that video, you know, it's mm-hmm. so like, keep on, keep on going. And then I, I, I practice that monologue with my teachers and, and I get very excited about, you know, the prospect of what it's going to look like. And that helps give me a short term goal. Yeah. I think the, the videos that you do are really, really interesting because I, I think it, it's not only, accountability for you because you know you're gonna have to do that video so it's you know there's a little extra push probably each day Mm -hmm. to like put in the time exactly because you know you're gonna be on on video doing those things um but then i think what's really cool probably over time is you can go back then and look at those videos and then you can see your progress yeah definitely month by month right because it can be really hard to tell i think if you're progressing because it's so incremental and sometimes you're lucky enough that someone will tell you, oh, your Chinese is so much better than the last time I saw you. But even then, you can't really be sure if they're just saying that. And right. and it's very it's not very often that you get feedback like that. So, yeah, when you look back at those videos, you think, oh, wow, there, re- there is a big difference in how I pronounced things and how you know fluently I expressed my thoughts. And, and it's a huge, huge motivation. Is that something you'd recommend for learners to do? Definitely. Yeah. So I call it my monologue method. Um, I really, I am really finding that I'm having a lot of benefit, especially with my intermediate languages, because there are several languages at which I really felt like I was kind of stuck, kind of plateauing, not having great resources or methods to, to progress onto the advanced level. And so I started doing these monologues where if I knew, for example, if I knew that I was, so for example, at, at my wedding, I decided I wanted to surprise my husband with a speech in Cantonese, and oh, I decided cool. to study Cantonese in secret. Um, and this is ex- this is actually how I started doing these monologues. So I met with a teacher um, three times a week in secret, and I told her, "Listen, I want to give this toast, um, you know, thanking my in-laws for everything, and I want it to be in Cantonese. So let's write it together. And then, since Cantonese is such a complex tonal language." can you record it for me? Because I think it's the only way that I'm really going to be able to nail the tones in such a short time. I only had three months to learn it. So she recorded it for me. And I just listened to that over and over and over at the gym. When I was walking around, I was listening to it over and over until I could basically sing it like a song, you know, Mm -hmm. you get it stuck in your head. Um, and it was so helpful for me. And I was able to apply, you know, sentences that were in that monologue I found later when I had to say a similar sentence in Cantonese, it would just come out because I could just plug in a different word for that, for the word that was in the sentence. So then I thought, wow, this is really, really useful. I should try this with other languages. And I got the idea of putting them on Instagram. 
And uh, it, fa- it turned out to be so useful to motivate myself. So when I started learning Vietnamese, also tonal language, I did the same thing. I just I wanted to be able to introduce myself and have like a very basic conversation because I kept on having these interactions with, say, taxi drivers that say, do you speak Vietnamese? And I'd mm-hmm. say, just a little bit. I've been studying for two weeks, you know. And I realized that if I just memorized that monologue, that part would go so much smoother. Yeah so much more smoothly. And then, you know, sometimes then you come to the, you come to a screeching halt and they ask you something else and you're like, nope, sorry, that's all I know. Right, right. <laughs> Can't go farther than this. But sometimes you could find, oh, actually, I do know that word. I'll just plug that word into the sentence that I already know and I can continue this conversation. So I definitely recommend using this method, working with the tutor, having the tutor record it so that you can listen to the prosody and the pronunciation yep. um, and then just practicing over and over and then recording it and then learning how to substitute other words into it if you need it. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good, I think, way to go. And it also, I think, puts the other person at ease because in some mm-hmm. cultures, especially when they see a non-native speaker, they're getting nervous because they're like, oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. have to speak English. So, yeah. so it's, when you come out with this flowing, maybe not perfect, but flowing introduction, yeah. they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, at least it's not all on me now. Right, we're both right. language learners. We're yeah. going to meet in the middle. It's not just a test of my English ability. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. That's so true. That's so true. And, and it also puts the focus on vocabulary that's actually useful to you. Yep. It forces you to learn, you know, for, and I had gotten this idea from a friend who um, knew that every once in a while he was working at a Korean company and every once in a while people get up at a company dinner and make a toast and he thought, well, what if I could just memorize one of these toasts mm-hmm. and I'll stand up and I'll give the toast as if it's just, you know, flowing out of my head. And, uh, and he did it. And he was just, it was such a raucous hit. People just loved it. They could not believe how good his Korean was that he thought, I'm just going to do this for everything. I'm just going to memorize, you know, the short little monologue that I should do when I'm meeting a client for the first time. Just learn those, you know, asking the client about what he needs and stuff. And then he realized, well, if you just put all these things together, you basically have a language. Right. So he was learning almost exclusively with monologues. And I thought that is such a good idea. So it really focuses on focuses you on the vocabulary you need. You know, if you're not going to be doing cooking, don't learn any cooking vocabulary. It's just yep. taking up unnecessary space in your head. Only learn what you need. For me, you know, to run a translation company, to talk to people when I travel, to explain where I'm from and why I don't look like where I'm from and that sort of thing, and explain that I'm allergic to chili peppers. Just get that stuff down. Mm-hmm. And that's all you're going to need. So don't waste any brain space. Yeah, it's amazing how differentiated it can get in in terms of topic i mean you know i can have lengthy discussions about linguistics in japanese Mm -hmm. but if you ask me about politics or finance it's like you know Mm yeah exactly it's so funny how you become this kind of different person in different languages based on what you're able to talk about and what you're an expert in yeah yeah that's really cool well thank you so much i really i really enjoyed uh digging in and um, if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? They can go to misslinguistic.com. That's where I blog about language learning and about linguistics and how to use linguistics to learn languages more efficiently. And then your oh. Instagram is at Yeah, you can also find me on Instagram right? at misslinguistic.com. Um, on Twitter, I'm mislinguistic, so M-S linguistic because mislinguistic was taken. Hate when um, that happens. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also on Facebook. You can find me. My full name is Sarah Maria Hasboon. You can find me there too. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks for having me on. Enjoy the rest of your time in noisy, bustly New York. Yeah. And uh, yeah, <laughs> safe you. travels back to Seoul. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a good care. one. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the show. For show notes, go to languagemastery.com slash show. And if you enjoyed what you heard, I would highly appreciate a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to this show. All right. See you next Friday.